This is episode number 153 of the Rising Man podcast with Jake Yoder. It is by going down into the abyss that we recover the treasures of life. Where you stumble, there lies your treasure. What is up, my Rising Man family? Jedi Azuma here, hosting you again. Honored to be here behind the mic, welcoming you back to the Rising Man podcast. If it's your first time here, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back. So grateful for all of you guys who tune in each and every week. I want to remind you before we jump into this episode to go and check out our latest offering from The Rising Man. It's our 12-week Ignite course that you can take online. We made it stupid affordable for all of you guys who are looking for an opportunity to transform your life heading into 2021. You can go and check it out at risingman.org ignite. I'm telling you guys, it is next level. It's all the best stuff that I've learned in the past 10 years. So go check it out, risingman.org org slash ignite. Okay, our guest today is Jake Yoder. Jake is a mountain guide and personal coach who specializes in helping men transform their addictive tendencies into healthy hobbies that naturally result in thriving. He's learned from over a decade of rock climbing, hiking, and other adventure sports that for him, achieved highs gained from adventure are far more rewarding than induced highs from substances. Jake's experience in long-term recovery and desire to share the outdoors led him to become the founder and CEO of Natural Highs Recovery. In this episode, Jake and I tackled the challenges of addiction. We spoke about the avoidance of feeling and how addictions to substances, experiences, and escapes serve as shields to deeper feeling. Jake talked about living in isolation and the pain of suffering from addiction, depression, and anxiety alone. We talked about the shame we hold around our addictions and how that further marginalizes people who really need help and support. Think about those times where you've been stuck in the darkness of your addiction, of your escape, and the last person you wanted to be around was somebody who had no idea what you were going through. Yeah, that's that's real. And we talked about why it's so important to find something that restores peace and balance in your life so that once and for all, you can overcome your addictions. This and so much more, but without further ado, Jake Yoder. All right, Rising Man family, I've got my brother Jacob Yoder here, tuning in from just a few miles down the road, actually, here in Santa Cruz, California, along with me. How are you enjoying that side of the mountains over there? Yeah, it's beautiful up here. It's called Happy Valley, so, you know, we can't really complain that much. (laughs) Is it that vibe up there? Because I haven't really spent much time in Happy Valley. Is it just like as advertised? You know, it's a pretty dreamy place. I kind of think of it as like, it's actually like a little safari because it's a land conservancy and... We're kind of up in the forest here and there's farmland. So people grow pears and grapes up here. Like when I look out of my yard, there's just birds that flit around. And whenever you uh, go anywhere, there's like, you always see deer, coyotes. There's an owl that likes to perch on a century plant. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's one of my favorite things ever since moving from Santa Barbara up here to Santa Cruz has just been the immersion in the wild that I get to experience, at least in most of us who live in these homes that are a little more in the woods. It's, it's nice up here, man. I really enjoy that. And it's a good segue into what we're talking about today, because I know the topic of conversation today is about addictions and the way that we deal with adversity as men. And I know that your strategy for dealing with that yourself has been to really immerse yourself in nature and adventure. And I love that as at least one vehicle, one option for overcoming this challenge that so many of us face. 
So before we get into that, let me ask you the question I ask every man on the show. And that is, what is the difference between a boy and a man? Ooh, decisiveness comes to mind, emotional intelligence, and I would say a degree of confidence and self-assurance, like almost like a centeredness. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that last piece for a second, the confidence and self-assuredness. Where did that come from for you in your journey from going from boyhood to manhood? Ooh, yeah, that, that comes straight back to like this core piece for me, which is really like, I just, I found myself out in the wilderness, you know, specifically climbing, climbing mountains. Like for me, that, I think that gave me a massive amount of the confidence that I've developed believing in myself. You know, I didn't start really with that stuff. I kind of had to learn it and develop it. And, you know, sometimes I, you know, I think back on like climbing and adventures that I've had, and I just feel a sense of calm. Like I sort of know what I'm capable of from certain things that I've done, situations that I've been in and the, you know, experiences that I've been blessed to have. For me, that plays a big role in giving me sort of like a, you know, belief in myself. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. And even just to simplify it even more for me, it's the experiences that we have regardless of what they are and directly related to challenge. I know that the greatest source of my confidence has come from experiences in my past where I faced off with something that I didn't know how I was going to navigate my way out of. I didn't even know if I could. I didn't even know if I could make it out of a situation alive or at least with my ego intact. <laughs> and so, so much of what gives us strength eventually has to do with the the challenge and the obstacle that we face off with. And I think that's a really relevant part of this conversation between boyhood and manhood. Because as boys, we invite the challenge. We look for the challenge to figure out what we can do, right? What are we capable of? How high can I climb? How far can I run? And it prepares us for manhood, you know, knowing our limits and knowing what we're capable of, Put literally pushing that envelope. But let's shift this into the conversation of adversity. Because for me, when we talk about addictions, we talk about substances, anything really that someone is using as an escape route from something else to me also ultimately stems back to some sort of challenge, a challenge or an adversity or an obstacle that a man is not willing to face off with or doesn't know how to face off with. So just give me your thoughts on that first piece about adversity and challenge for men. Definitely. Yeah. I think that's really poignant with addiction. I think we are, whether we know it or not at the time, sort of escaping from something. And for a long time, in my own journey, I thought that I was just, you know, smoking pot, doing some of the things I was doing because it just felt good. It wasn't until, you know, six years went by of relying on that daily and then finally understanding that it was an addiction, you know, and getting clean and sober, even a, a length of time being clean and sober before I finally understood that I was really myself escaping from anxiety. That was the adversity, the challenge that I had that I didn't even know I wasn't facing. I just, you know, was able to avoid it and stayed in this subconscious pattern of avoiding it for a really long time. And I think that the anxiety stemmed from just feeling like, I think a lot of it was just feeling like the things that were going on in my head back in like the high school setting when I was a teenager, 
you know, I started smoking pot and addictive patterns started for me at 14 years old. I think I just felt like the high school crowd and what was going on in most people's minds and what most people cared about was just like so different from what I was thinking about and feeling, you know, I didn't, I just didn't even have the awareness for a long time that that challenge was there. And I was running away from it. Well, I think that's the key is that we don't have a context for understanding challenge and adversity as boys, as teenagers, as adolescents. That was exactly what led me down my road was being surrounded by really wonderful people. I have a really loving family. I had, a, I've always had an amazing supportive network of friends and people that are close to me like family. And yet I was experiencing a lot of the darkness, a lot of the aloneness and a sense of feeling lost that I hear most guys talking about because there wasn't really anybody around me providing that, that framework, that message that, Hey, life is hard. It's not easy. There's no way around it. There's no way to avoid challenge and adversity. And if, if somebody had told me when I was maybe 13 years old that I was gearing up for a life of hardship and challenge, and not that that meant that life was going to be dark and sad all the time and painful, but that that was just going to be one component of the whole journey, I, at least I believe in theory that I would have been better prepared for it. I kind of wish somebody just laid that out for me in a way that I could hear. And maybe that's the the challenge is finding a way to articulate that to a young person who really doesn't know what that means. You know, part of it was I had to go out in the world and find out that the world's going to slap you around a little bit <laughs> to make sure that you're ready for bigger responsibilities. But I do believe in my heart of hearts that there's more we can do to prepare men for the challenges of life, the rigors of life, the difficulties of being a husband, a father, a provider, a leader in your community, an honorable human being, somebody who lives by a strong moral code. And I don't know, I, I didn't get that. I don't know what your experience was like. Was there anybody in your life who gave you some of that direction or messaging? You know, it's really interesting. I think about this sometimes, and I think what you're saying is really true and important. You know, even something as simple as just if we had a cultural practice of, you know, checking in with people, with boys, or really people, like when you just sort of guidance, like we don't have a strong cultural practice of guidance, I think. And with being a man, for me, like when I think about it, like, I don't remember really any conversations that I had with anyone around that pivotal time, you know, 12, 13, 14, about being a man. Like my father is like this amazing, wonderful human being. Like he's a great guy and he provided for our family. But, you know, I don't remember having any conversations with him about manhood or checking in or any kind of guidance that was like, hey, like, you know, here's what's you know, just so you know, like this phase of your life that you're in as a teenager right now, it's, you know, it's kind of natural or this is, this is what's supposed to happen. And I don't really think that that's his fault. I think we just culturally, we don't really have a framework set up for that. Yeah. That story is one that I hear almost every man that's in our generation say about his father or whatever fatherly figure that he had in his life. That, you know, if he was a good man, that, yeah, he was a good man, provided for his family, mostly that he was leading by example, kind of embodying at least some of those qualities and characteristics of what it meant to be a solid man in his family. But there was never really those conversations. 
I still, I'm 33 years old. I've still never talked to my dad about sex. He was so uncomfortable even broaching that subject. I remember my mom, literally, we were, I remember being in the car. I think we were driving home from somebody's like birthday dinner. And I don't know what sparked my mom to say this. It must've been something that I did that she observed. I was probably 12 or 13. And I remember we're in the car. It's me and my mom, my dad, and my younger brother. And my mom says to my dad, hey, are you going to have that conversation with your son? Are you going to do your fatherly duty? And I knew exactly what she was talking about. And so did he. And I think everyone was aware that she was kind of like pointing at the elephant in the room. And it was one of the most uncomfortable 10 minutes of my life because <laughs> I'm sitting there going like, oh man, what a horrible timing to bring that up. And I could also see my dad was uncomfortable with that too. So that's just one example of conversations that I don't think my dad knew how to have. I never asked him, but I imagine that he never had those conversations with his father. And so again, I don't blame him. He's probably just doing what he learned from his dad. And I think that's the responsibility that we get to undertake in this generation is that I have a son. I want to talk to my son about these things. I want to tell him those things that I don't, I feel like I missed out on. I, I wish my dad or someone, some adult would have said, Hey, someday you're going to have to pay taxes and it's going to be really hard. <laughs> someday you're going to have to manage your finances and it's not going to be easy. And I'm not going to tell you how to figure it out, but it's just something to be aware of. Someday you're going to get your heart broken and it's not going to feel good, but you're going to be all right. It's part of the journey. I agree with you, man. It's missing in our culture. And if we have more of these conversations, I think it would really better prepare our young people for, for what they are stepping into, especially, especially with this world, with this climate that we're looking at, not just the environmental climate, but everything. It's a pretty tall order to ask them to step into. Definitely. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, it's really interesting what you said about like your dad and what he learned from his dad. You know, actually, when I think about it, the one conversation that really stands out about this kind of thing was not from my dad, but from his dad, my grandfather. And my grandfather is very Christian on that side. And so my dad was raised in a very Christian environment, but he did not relate to that. And later on in his life, he, he chose to, you know, walk his own spiritual path and he, he left Christianity. And that, that's really interesting to think about because when I had the conversation with my grandfather, it was my grandfather sitting me down. I think I was around that age. I, I don't know if I had smoked pot yet or not. I have a feeling that I, it was already kind of too late. Like I was already doing that. And I think I may have had already lost my virginity as well. <laughs> so a little late there, but, but I do remember my grandfather saying, I don't want to hear any sad stories, he said. And sad means sex, alcohol, and drugs. So no sad stories, you know, and he came and he said, do you understand? And I was like, yeah, totally. I got it. And he came into that with a really compassionate sentiment, but like, that's was the conversation, you know, it wasn't like what's going on in your life. Like, have you experienced or experimented with this stuff? Like, Hey, you can talk to me about it. You know, it wasn't like that. It was like, I don't want to hear any sad stories. And that's really interesting. If you think about it, like, I don't want to hear any sad stories. Okay, well, then I'll keep them quiet, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and when I think about it, my dad, that's his dad. So that's what I'm sure the same talk that he was given. And so no wonder, you know, he didn't have really tools to branch out very far on that. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it just reminds me of being a young person and starting to feel big feelings, big emotions, 
some of the ones that stand out are the first time that my heart got broken, the first time that somebody really in- insulted me and really made me feel like I was a piece of shit and wanting to run away from that, not even knowing how to just be with the feeling and trying to escape the feeling. That was really when it started for me was when I was a teenager. I feel like it was around 16 was when I started to look for ways to escape what I was feeling. I was kind of late in the weed game. I was one of those kids that was like, hell no, like I'm going to be straight edge on this. I believe everything that they're telling me about marijuana as a gateway drug. So I'm just going to hold off on that. I drank a little bit with my friends, but nothing too crazy in high school. A lot of my escapism came in the form of like eating the, what, like just eating a bunch of junk foods or mostly just kind of like bypassing my emotions and not feeling them, pretending they weren't happening and just trying to get around it. Cause that's, that's what I figured out how to do. And then obviously when I got into my late teens, early twenties, anyone who's listened to the podcast before, I uh, started smoking a ton of weed and cigarettes, tobacco, anything that I could do to just dampen the sensation. That's really what it came down to for me. And I know this conversation where we're going to talk about substances specifically and our addictions to substances, but also just experiences, anything that we can use as an escape from the challenge. I think of it like if I'm approaching like one of those spiky pits that's everything's lit on fire and that's like what I have to get through to continue on with my life, I'm looking for the way I can just kind of sneak underneath it or walk around it. Those are the, for me, those are what, that's what substances were. That's what relationships and sex and jerking off to porn And all of that was just a way around the hard path, (laughs) looking for like the path of less resistance. So I would open it back up to you to see what you've, because I know that you've spent a lot of time understanding your own journey with addiction and helping other people. So when you start to look at the actual obstacle, the actual barrier, what are you identifying? What are you looking for? Yeah. I mean, what you said about just being with a feeling really resonated. I mean, I'm, (laughs) I work with a therapist on that exact thing right now. I also work with a coach on that, you know, and a a little bit more like different approach and action oriented approach. But like, you know, I have multiple forms of support that I now use for kind of facing feelings basically in place of, you know, and I, and I go to, you know, I not super involved anymore at the moment, but I, I used, you know, 12 step meetings as support also, just kind of needed a lot of support around being able to feel feelings like that, you know, I actually managed by smoking pot and using drugs to go a pretty long time convinced that like I could feel good pretty much all the time. I pretty much to some degree, I pulled that off using, you know, those chemical advantages, so to speak to some degree though, I think whenever I did feel feelings, I never acknowledged it. I would kind of convince myself, I would kind of pretend as soon as possible that hadn't happened and that I'm all good. And, you know, I I sort of almost split my psyche in a way and just lived in this like belief that like, I pretty much was great all the time, you know? And I can see now like, whoa, I never practiced like not trying to avoid a feeling like I never practiced just letting a feeling, you know, be there and therefore like be felt and, and be processed. Like it'll actually move through, you know, it creates like a resolution that 
I, you know, in my experience has been a way different and more full form of healing or resolution of a feeling than, than anything I ever got from finding ways to avoid it. Yeah. I think it has a lot to do with the society that we live in. There's so much messaging around life being the pursuit of comfort and relief and happiness. I just think about, I don't watch TV, but I know that when I did, all of the advertisements ultimately were pointing towards do this, buy this, get this, have this, and you will feel happy, fulfilled, sexy, et cetera. All of these up emotions, right? That the preferred things, the things that we can crave, whereas the things that we're averse to, like pain, suffering, sadness, grief, the lower vibrational energies and emotions, we've been taught to run away from them, you know, almost to the point where there's a lot of people out there who are really uncomfortable being with somebody who's sad or watching somebody in their grief. It's funny because I see my children, they're very, they're always very curious when somebody's sad. Like if you ever spend time around a really small, like my daughter does this all the time, she's 18 months. And if somebody starts crying, like, especially in our household, if my wife starts crying or my son or myself, She'll go over and she won't get sad right away. She'll just kind of look at you like, what's going on? Like, what is this thing that's happening for you? There's a curiosity. And as we get older, I start to see, you know, people like walk away from it, turn away from it, say, hey, don't surround yourself with quote unquote negative people. And I think there's just this overall societal belief that those emotions are bad and that we should collectively run away from them, ignore them, avoid them at all costs. But I also believe that of trying to avoid them at all costs is like trying to run away from yourself. You just you can't win that race. And eventually it has even greater repercussions and consequences. You know, the guy who becomes a headline because he's been stuffing down his grief and emotions and depression for so long and he goes and blows his head off or shoots up a school or something like that. To me, I, I can't help but see a correlation between being sad and grief averse and depression averse and anxiety averse and these explosions of emotion that happen that we just, we just can't expect a human to be able to control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I do think we run away from it in ourselves and from other people. So it isolates people and it isolates and we isolate ourselves. You know, I mean, even my best friend right now, I mean, he suffered from gnarly, gnarly suicidal depression and I've just watched him on this journey, like come so far out of that from where he was at. It's been beautiful. But, you know, like he says to me all the time, like just, you know, he thanks me all the time for just being a friend that could just be there with that. You know, I, and I think people do run away from it. And I think that people think like if somebody's depressed or suicidal or something like they're around you or they express it to you, like. I don't know. People think that it's going to be a burden or you have to solve it or man, there's so much power in just being able to just be there with them. Like you don't have to do anything, you know, like, yeah, like definitely offer to, you know, take them somewhere they need to be if they're at risk or, you know, have that conversation. But I mean, I just decided for myself early on in my, in my connection with this person that like, you know, I'm not, I'm not like responsible for saving him from depression, but there's no reason I can't be his friend. And I just like, 
what I've learned is there's no reason for it to really bother me if that stuff comes up. I'm just like, I can just be with it. He hadn't really found that in anyone else except his mom in his life. And he says that, you know, it's been a huge part of like healing, just one, just one person, you know, we hang out every week and we, we go usually mountain biking. He actually rides a unicycle. You may have seen him around town. He rides a unicycle and he, he dances cause you know, your hands free while you ride a unicycle. And, you know, he's on this beautiful journey now gearing up for a world tour on his unicycle. And, you know, it's just, yeah, exactly what you said. I mean, being just being able to like be with that stuff and not have it freak us out can really go a long way. It's kind of like, you know, when somebody's sick, they say, oh, don't go near that person. You don't want to get sick. It's funny to use that as an example in these COVID times, but obviously there's some wisdom to that, right? Like if you go near somebody who's sick, you may run the risk of getting sick as well. But when we're talking about emotional, I don't even want to call it disease or sickness, because I think that's part of the languaging is what makes it seem so dark. Just somebody going through a hard time, right? Because we all go through it. There's no human being on this planet who's never been depressed, never been anxious, never felt that. It's part of the full spectrum of human experience. I think normalizing that that is something that we all get to experience at some point or another and embracing people who are going through that experience instead of ostracizing them or quarantining them or exiling them from the community because you don't want it to get on you, right? You don't want it to inconvenience you. I think that's another thing. People think, well, if I let this, you know, depressed, anxious person into my life, then I'm going to become depressed and anxious. And that only happens if you're vulnerable to that. If you haven't created a presence within yourself where other people's stuff doesn't have to impact you that way which takes a lot of work. I think that's that's a whole nother conversation about emotionally guarding ourselves so that we can, because the only way you can really be present for someone like that without going down that same similar dark path with them is to know who you are and to know where you stand. So that's another thing I think we get to train our, not just our young people, but all of our people to be able to withstand. But moreover, just letting this be a, a normalized conversation that, hey, we're going to go through this at times. And it doesn't mean that we have to, kick someone off the island because they're depressed. No, what if we embrace them? That's one of the hardest parts for people who are going through addictions. And I know people who are listening to this are going to really relate. When you have a relapse on an addiction, this happened for me when I started smoking cigarettes again. I married a woman who at the t- I had quit smoking and she said, I told her I was had used to smoke cigarettes and weed. And she said, oh man, that's, that's really like a no-go for me. If that ever happened, I'd have a real hard time with it. So had that in the back of my mind, boom, massive hardship comes up in my life, you know, solo provider for a family trying to figure out life and all that. And I started smoking cigarettes again and there was no way I could bring myself to talk to her about it because she had already set up the context that this could mean that the end of our marriage in one sense or another, it was going to be a really hard conversation and I didn't want that conversation. So who did I share my experience with? Other people who smoked, because that's what addicts do. We go and we find each other and we commiserate over the fact that we're not going to judge each other. Hey, I can't judge you if for smoking a cigarette, if that's what I'm doing. And what it does is it creates these isolated communities of hiding out and kind of being in our own darkness and commiserating together. And there's not a lot of solution in those circles. There's more just, well, I'm not going to judge you. So you can be here and do this thing, but there's nobody to help you find your way out because the other person is its like a starving person trying to help someone else who's hungry. Yeah, it's funny. There's a relief. There's a relief that comes with being with 
people that aren't judging you. That same relief that you feel when you go join a group of addicts and you pass a blunt around or, you know, whatever, you know, that same relief comes, came for me and I've seen it come for many other people. You know, if you do get clean and you, or even before you get clean, you go to a 12 step meeting and there's a room full of addicts there too. And, you know, they're clean and they know what you've been through. And I mean, the relief that comes with that actually heals people from addiction, which if you think about it is powerful. I mean, this is a a disease, like a mental health challenge, you know, partly individual, partly systemic, partly cultural. I mean, like, I think what it comes down to for me is addiction is no joke. Like it's a massive problem. I've read studies of one in eight American adults qualified for like the criteria of alcoholism that's been set by doctors. And like, it's just anything that's going on at that scale, you got to think that's, that's a big deal. And so for something to be able to heal that is also a big deal. It's like, whoa. And what that such a huge piece of that is the relief of like not being judged and being with people who get it or who will just listen. And so I think there's even like a miniature version of that going on just with even that can happen in a conversation. If somebody's going through a hard time and you're just kind of not going to be freaked out by the struggle that they're having, there's just a relief in that. Yeah, I agree. I can definitely resonate that with that myself. That was definitely my experience. And it was actually beautiful because on one of those moments where I relapsed and I was finally able to open up to my wife about it, she got to choose to be supportive. Then it really gave me the strength to, to break through it once and for all. Because up until that point, it always felt like something I would need in the background. You know, like most people who are addicted to anything, you quit it for a period of time and then some other hardship emerges that causes you to go back to your ways of finding relief. And there was something about this time around where I felt like I could really put it aside because I was having the most vulnerable and transparent conversation with my wife that I ever had around my challenges and my struggles. And I knew I'd done enough work at this point that I knew those challenges and struggles weren't going to go away, but that I could decide that this way of dealing with them wasn't okay with me anymore. And in supporting men in this line of work, not specifically through addiction, but just challenges in general, I've learned that until you make that decision that you actually want to find a different strategy for dealing with your challenges, then you're not supportable. You can't help a guy who's an alcoholic who thinks that drinking is still a pretty good solution or isn't actually gotten to the point. This is why they say you got to hit rock bottom, right? Because rock bottom is, wow, this really isn't going to work for me anymore. (laughs) Hopefully it's not the kind of rock bottom that has major lifelong consequences, but that's what has to happen, right? Is we got to hit that point where we say, I'm closing this escape hatch for myself because I've seen what this does and it's not working. I'm going to go look for a different one. Absolutely. Yeah. People do have to hit that point. You know, you hear it called being sick and tired of being sick and tired or hitting rock bottom. I mean, one thing that I encourage people to do is not to wait for rock bottom to get really bad. But to know if you have awareness that you have a behavior that doesn't, when you do it, you don't feel like your highest self or you kind of know there's something going on or you're aware of an addiction, basically. I encourage using vision to bring your rock bottom up to you. This can be done. I mean, there are people who believe that, you know, people just have to go to the lowest depths and lose everything in order to finally 
turn it around to that's not true. You don't actually. And if you tune in enough to what you want for yourself and whether or not that aligns with your behaviors right now, you can create a rock bottom for yourself because it becomes unbearable to be living in a way that you know is not going to allow you to be who you want to be. When you develop that awareness, for me, when I first got clean, when I was 19 years old, I had already been high for the past six years. Like it didn't come from getting arrested or being homeless or, you know, and nothing against anybody that that happens to. I also had a lot of advantages. But what I'm saying is you don't have to have that stuff happen in order to turn it around. For me, it was this uh, almost like this mounting realization that I just couldn't make the difference I wanted to make in the world if I was going to continue to use pot and other drugs and continue the behaviors that I, that I was doing. And as I tuned more and more into that, I couldn't stop using yet. I still in my patterns and, you know, it's not easy when your social life revolves around it and your, you know, home life and your, your nervous system revolves around it. But over a little bit of time, once I really got aware of that, I couldn't enjoy it anymore. Like I couldn't keep using and actually enjoy it because I just became so aware that I can't be who I want to be by doing this. And so, you know, that kind of ruins it for you. And it's kind of a bummer, right? It's like, oh shit, well, you know, I can't. But the beauty of it, the blessing is addiction then has an opportunity to drop away because you can't really continue to be addicted to something that you just, when you can't enjoy it anymore, now you have a chance. Now you have a shot at recovery because now the escape isn't even working anymore. So, you know, that's what rock bottom really is when the escape, when that behavior is just not even going to work anymore. Like it's not even an option. Those extreme circumstances don't necessarily have to happen for that to occur. Yeah. I know we're focusing a lot on substances, but obviously I'm, I'm also including anything that's addictive, right? Overeating, masturbation, pornography, social media, right? Working out. A lot of these things can also be addictive tendencies and have a lot of the same patterns, at least by, in my perspective. I know I definitely don't claim to be a specialist, but I've seen it. What I've found also is that you get these moments of clarity, regardless of what your quote unquote drug of choice is or addiction of choice. You get that moment of clarity where you're like, damn, like what, what am I doing this for? What's this all about? And to me, those are like those windows where you can make that shift. Like you're talking about, you can recognize that this really isn't working anymore. It's not the same. It's not working the way it used to for me anymore. And I got to do something different. I got to, got to make a change. But I think some people just dig deeper. They look for a different, well, this isn't working for me anymore. What else can I use? And I think that's the the risk we run of like finding a harder drug, a harder substance, a more extreme way of trying to escape that sometimes leads to a really dark bottom. And I, I like that you're saying that you don't have to go there. Some people need to experience that. I get it, you know, but I don't think everybody does either. I definitely hit a really low spot for myself, but it wasn't like what I've seen some people experience. So what is that aside from just the clarity? Cause there's the awareness, right? Like, Oh, I don't like this life. I don't like where this is going. 
Now what? When you plug in there, especially as somebody who's working with people through this, when, when they notice, I don't want this anymore, what now? That's a great question. I actually have a name for that. I call it your recreational calling. That, you know, is something playing off the idea of a calling, right? Like we all want, or many people want to find a calling in life, a purpose. And we often associate that with a professional outcome, like our work life, like, you know, what's your calling for what you want to do for work. And um, I think that that's a huge, huge goldmine of, of happiness and, and well-being, if, you know, to pursue and create that in your professional life. But also, and this gets overlooked, I think human beings have two callings, so to speak. We may have like a professional calling. Then there's also a recreational calling. And you can merge the two if you want to. Some people love that idea. Some people can only do that. Some people prefer to keep work and play separate. But I encourage anybody who needs, you know, a new coping mechanism to really dive into that recreational calling and identify what that is for them. And I've heard, I've heard so many versions of it. And some of them I wouldn't have been able to imagine was somebody's happy place. Like, you know, it could be anything from, for me, it's definitely rock climbing, mountains, wilderness, any outdoor sports for, for others. I've heard, you know, anything from yoga to skateboarding, to art, painting, you know, lots of different sports, baseball, basically any sport. And I've even heard people say things like working on vehicles is when, when I'm at peace, you know, or like, you know, just certain, there's just certain things that are, you know, that sort of create a flow state or a peaceful state for a person. And, you know, I tell people, you know, find, treat that like a calling. Sometimes people don't set don't live very intentionally around their recreational life when that's something that actually has huge uplifting power. And so some things you can do are, are, you know, first of all, getting really clear what that recreational calling is, or at least what it is right now. And then actually setting recreational goals, like gamify that, make it something that's actually, you know, right now mine is, has actually kind of shifted to mountain biking and I'm like looking up trails. And so I always have kind of something I'm looking forward to and having sort of a next adventure and, you know, you can set goals around it. You can even create large visions like, you know, summiting a huge peak someday that you're going to need lots of training for or something like that. These things, they give us purpose. Like, People look for that, I think, in professional life and sometimes overlook it in recreational life. But that that's what I call natural highs. Yeah. Yeah. Which I which I love. And, and we could talk more about your specific outlet in a second. Are there are there parameters on what types of activities or hobbies that because like you said, there's so many. So are there are there certain things that people could look for to help identify what that might be for them? I definitely encourage anything that immerses you in nature. If you're struggling with addiction, anxiety, depression, nature is just incredibly healing. It has environmental factors that 
just integrate with our evolution to calm our nervous system. You know, the sounds, sights, smells of wilderness or being in nature, in the forest, anywhere that has, you know, much less human influence in terms of development. You know, these things are extremely powerful, these places for healing and for restoring human well-being. And so anything that gets you into those environments, I find has double the recreational benefits because it has the environment and the other aspects, which include exercise. A lot of the time, that's another big one. I would definitely encourage, you know, when you're building your kind of recreational life or your recreational calling to have something in there that's an exercise factor for the endorphins, you know, so nature exercise come highly recommended. And then I encourage a variety. So I think that if you have enough things that you can rotate through, you'll always have novelty available to you. And this works really, really well for the addict brain, especially because we need high levels of stimulation. <laughs> like, you know, I talk about recreational calling and this, this big thing, you know, and for me it's climbing, but like there's a larger picture there, which is having a set of variety of tools in your arsenal and your recreational life. So I rotate through like climbing, mountain biking, hiking, backpacking. And then I have some things that are in a completely different category, like music. I play classical guitar. I like to write spoken word poetry and hip hop. And I do silly things like freestyle rapping or, you know, I just sent a, a rap video that I wrote in five minutes to a friend of mine and told him he had to send me one back. <laughs> uh, so anyway, kind of rotating through and then, you know, having like, I always have uh, like a, a spiritual book and then a more kind of like self-development. I like to have for me, like two things I'm reading, one that's a little bit more like entertainment and one that's a little bit more like studying self-development or research. So anyways, that kind of paints a picture of like, for me, the effect of having those things is there's always something that I'm pretty excited to do. And they're all things that have healthy outcomes associated with them, as opposed to, because I used to do the same exact thing with drugs, man, same shit. <laughs> I, I would, you know, I had pot, I had alcohol, I had, you know, uh, psychedelics, I had things that I could turn to like Adderall or prescription pills that weren't prescribed to me, you know, some heavier stuff like ketamine that I got into towards the end there, like, and those were all on rotation the same way. And what it did was it allowed me to always have something that, you know, I was looking forward to next. And now I just do that with a whole new set of things and they're all healthy hobbies and activities. And they've all contributed to not just staying sober and clean, but thriving, thriving without fighting against my nature as an addict. I use my nature as an addict that exact nature has propelled me up many, many mountains and, you know, on bike rides and it, it propels me in doing these new things. Uh, I like that. I think that's like the sublimation of all of this is recognizing that this is a part of our nature, part of our character and that it can be leveraged. It's, it's just like anything else, right? It can be a tool or it can be a weapon. 
And so leveraging your addictive personality, if you have one, or your addictive habits, if you have them, into something that is, like you said, healthy. And that's really up for everyone else to decide, like, what is healthy, because that's very subjective, I think. But I think most of us would agree that, you know, trading an alcohol habit for a gambling habit is probably not the healthiest thing for you. So you're left to decide that. The only piece for me that I would add into it is I also think it's helpful to choose things that can be done socially. So like, for example, you can go mountain biking with other people. You can find other people who love to climb because a big part of shifting those habits is surrounding yourself with people who share those same things and don't share the thing that you want to get away from, but also not to be dependent on people. Like you could still go out and go on a solo ride or on a solo climb, but the opportunity to be able to be social with other people. I mean, it's, I guess you could go join a book club if you want to read, but if you're going to read, it's, it's like another place to easily hermit up and escape from. So that would be my encouragement on top of what you said, because you brought in so much really great stuff and And I really appreciate that, man. I know we're getting close to time here, so I want to make sure that we leave time to to wrap this up. Any last words of anything that hasn't been said about overcoming addiction that you want to put as a cherry on top? Yeah. uh, Well, first, I totally agree with that. The social element is super important. New people, places, and things, you know, going off of that, that's my cherry on top. You know, do the things that will give you new people, places, and things. So, you know, if that's yoga it's going to provide new connections through going to yoga classes so that's people it's going to provide new environments which is the yoga studio and you know the music that the teacher plays and the calming effects and of the lighting in the room and that kind of thing so that's places and then things you know you're going to be carrying like a yoga mat and some you know athletic clothes with you instead of you know bongs and whatnot. So (laughs) people, places and things are are huge and uh, look for the activities that will give you access to that. Nice. I like that. That's a nice, simple one. New people, new places, new things. All right, man. Rapid fire time. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions to wrap up here. Just lightning round style. Okay. You ready? All right. What is one thing you've learned in your life that you wish you knew when you were 18? Ooh, how to be concise. How to be concise. Nice. And what do you think is the most important value to have as a man? patience. Good one. I like that. And last but not least, man, tell everybody where they can find you outside of Happy Valley here in Santa Cruz, California. Where can people go to look you up, follow you, get involved with some of the amazing things you're doing? You can find me at Natural Highs Recovery on Instagram and naturalhighsrecovery.org if you want to learn more about some of our trips and events. And then there's a Facebook group for young, sober, and sober curious people who are adventurous and want to connect with others on Facebook, we have a Natural Highs community group. That's awesome, man. And just give us one or two sentences about Natural Highs and what you guys are, what kind of opportunities you're creating for people and who it would be appropriate for. Yeah, it's for, so I do coaching one-on-one for young people in their 20s and 30s who are sober or curious about getting sober and want to optimize the adventures they have in their lives and the difference they make in the world. And the other component of Natural Highs is we do trips and events and specifically partner with a local rehab here in Santa Cruz. We have plans to expand to do camping, hiking, and that sort of thing with the recovery community at large. 
Yeah. Beautiful, man. Well, it's a great dialogue to have today. I love what you're doing, bringing people, uh, I mean, anything that you're doing to get people connected more to nature and out of their escape and coping patterns that they've had that are ineffective, I think is really great work. And I appreciate you coming in and making the time here today to talk more about that, man. It's really good to get to drop in with you. Definitely. You too, man. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you, bro. Well, we'll, uh, we'll definitely circle up somewhere down the road and find out more about all the experiences and adventures you're taking people on. Definitely. That sounds great. All right, fam. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Make sure you go to risingman.org to check out all our amazing offerings, including our latest offering, Ignite. Go to risingman.org slash Ignite to check that out and get yourself signed up today. No better way to start off 2021. Trust me. All right, check out the show notes for links and resources at risingman.org. Make sure you subscribe and follow us wherever you're listening to the podcast. Check us out on Instagram at Rising Man Movement and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash The Rising Man Movement. Shout out to my power team, Rowan, Sean, Julian, Ryan, Mark, and my man, Kyle, who's been helping us out, hooking it up. Thank you for everything you've been doing to step in, bro. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.